Well, good morning, and again, uh, congratulations on weathering the jungle out there. Glad you made it in. So uh, we uh, initiated or began a, a season, a very, what is described, at least in the literature, as a very solemn and religious season. Of course, I'm thinking of the observance of Lenten uh, as part of the Christian uh, liturgical calendar. Uh, it's a calendar, of course, that begins on Ash Wednesday, so we actually uh, initiated uh, Lenten here in this church on our Compline service uh, this Ash Wednesday as well. It's going to basically last until about, uh, you know, right before Easter. But what is particularly interesting, and I was just kind of curious, is, is to how it seems to be reflected in things like Wikipedia. And so I, I looked at it, and, and so what are we supposed to be doing at this season of Lenten if we were to choose to reflect on it and to to make this a season in our life of reflection. What would we do? Well, it would say, they, it would go like this. Uh, it's a time for doing penance, mortifying the flesh, repenting of our sins, almsgiving, and self-denial. Somehow, that's gotten translated to giving up chocolate and soft drinks. Uh, I haven't heard anyone give up scotch yet, praise God, but no. Uh, but the... Uh, you know, it's interesting what, what, what's it, it happened. Even the Pope, you know, uh, sort of gave this decree and said, I want to see everyone in Linton stop trolling. And, um, and, and it begins to sound a lot like self-help spirituality, doesn't it? I mean, there's a kind of, of, of diminishment that begins to take place in our culture. It's odd, isn't it, that some who rarely attend church, perhaps, or who are, uh, you know, just, you know, privately maybe religious, uh, there's a tendency to want to go and find an Ash Wednesday service. We had many visitors. I don't know where they've come from in contexts like that this Sunday, but it was a wonderful, I mean, Wednesday, but it was a wonderful service. But, but it's interesting that that's how it's described. It sounds also holy, and it sounds also religious, penance and repentance and mortifying the flesh, almsgiving, but is that what this is all about? It's interesting, this Wednesday, we, I began by explaining a little bit what Ash Wednesday is about, and it seems to suggest a corrective. For since the 11th century, we ashes have been imposed upon the faithful, but why? As a reminder that the wages of sin is death. As God said to Adam, dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. Genesis 3. And yet, here is the key. We are putting the death of who on our forehead? We remember our death, but the cross, the Ash Wednesday cross, we're putting the death of Christ on our forehead. It led me in our short commentary on Wednesday to exhort us to repent of our repentance. I could have just as well named this sermon that. As, I, as we turn to this, this passage in the Beatitudes, it's interesting, perhaps ironic, that on this particular week we find ourselves in our exposition through the book of Matthew in chapter 5, and the Beatitudes, and it's interesting as well that with the Beatitudes there is a tradition, I should say a more popular tradition, that would see Beatitudes as in the sense of the way the popular culture tends to see uh, 
the, the Lenten season as a list of moral virtues that we're, to, that we're to aspire to in order that we might flourish in the kingdom of God. And yeah, to, to be sure, it's, it's true. But ironically, it gets turned on its head because we may see today a little different take within, if we read it within the context, if we read it within the prophecy that inspired it in Isaiah 61, here again, we need to read our Bible slowly and we need to start reading it contextually within the Old Testament as well. And so I hope that you're excited to do this uh, as we think about uh, the question, not just what does it mean to celebrate Lenten. Uh, you're not even commanded to do that in Scripture, but you may find it helpful. And if you do, but whether you do or not, it's the real question of, well, who is it that receives the kingdom of God? Who are those to whom does the kingdom of God come? That's the point of the Beatitudes. Let's pray. So God, help us. Help us, Lord. We are so prone to trust in our own sufficiency. We bring it in every aspect of our life, and, and then we come to our faith in you, and we are prone to take that habit, that liturgy of life, of self-sufficiency, and we bring it right into our faith. We begin to impose it upon our scriptures. We pray, God, forgiveness, and help us, Lord, to see Christ exalted in this beatitude, not us. Set us free from self-help, spirituality, and Christianity, that we might truly put ourselves under the help and mercy of Christ. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So a couple of weeks ago in our last sermon through Matthew, um, we ended with those who were called to, to go out and to proclaim the kingdom of God has come near. Remember? The idea that it has broken in in the coming of Christ and there's a great sending of the apostles in order that they might become fishers of people. This week, then, Matthew wants to turn to those who would receive their proclamation. Those who would receive this kingdom that has now come near, that is into the midst of our world. To whom does the kingdom of God come is the question. Who will receive the proclamation? Now remember, through this whole series we've been talking about so far, Matthew's meta-narrative, if you will, of the kingdom of God, Christ the great king who ushers in a new kingdom. And it's the of God part that we've tried to emphasize over and over again. It's not a kingdom that, that is sourced from human ingenuity and human ability and human wisdom. It's, it's a kingdom not of this world and quite literally not of this world. It comes from another sphere, which is why heaven particularly becomes synonymous with of God or of heaven in Matthew's gospel. The kingdom of heaven has come near. It's a kingdom from another sphere, another power, another wisdom, all of it, which would obviously begin to incline you to understand how to read the Beatitudes. But again, I warn you, please, you have to read your scripture in context. We're already set in motion from the sermons we've had, to very quickly see this in, in the Beatitudes, but let's make sure we do. 
by way of a great messianic expectation in the Old Testament, we see the same question. To whom will the kingdom of God come? Will in the future in Isaiah's day. Let me read it again. Because it is, it is language that is clearly being repeated in the Beatitudes. For the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me. This is a messianic uh, uh, you know, prophecy. He has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind the broken heart, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to release the prisoners, to proclaim the great year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort those who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion. This is very much like what we see in the Psalms. Psalms 146, again, a messianic psalm. Blessed are those, now we have a beatitude. A beatitude is simply a blessing, by the way. Blessed are those whose help is themselves. Makes sense, right? Well, of course that's not what it says. Gotcha. <laughs> Blessed are those. Where'd it go here? Yeah. Blessed are those whose help is the God of Jacob, who God will execute justice for the oppressed, who God gives good to those who thirst. Who God lifts those who are bowed down. Who God loves and makes righteous, etc., etc. It goes, God. And so we see then in the Beatitudes a fulfillment of these prophecies. Now there has been, again, two ways of historically to interpret these Beatitudes. One is what you could call the kind of the moralist uh, or the ethical overtone, as in to see it as a law which, if we were to keep it, would create or would make us to flourish and to be happy. Sometimes they're interpreted, happier are those. And again, that's not necessarily a bad translation, ironically. Flourishing will those be? But it, in the Old Testament, in a geopolitical environment, there was a kind of works righteousness. You could have said this in an outward and temporal sense, that those who are faithful to God, those who keep the law, they will be temporally blessed. Land and things like that. But as we come to the New Testament, you begin to have a flag, because everywhere in the New Testament, it translates that, that temporal, typological, foreshadowing, teaching, tutoring moment of the law under Israel as a geopolitical state. The church was also the state, you see. We see in the New Testament clearly that that was meant, even as the, as, as the prophets would have told you if you'd read them, but, but even there in the New Testament, you see clearly that this was meant to portray a reality about the law, and those who seek to fulfill it in order to be blessed. Why do I say that? Because by the time we get to Jesus, you were quite frankly incredibly exasperated. For with all these passionate, we will do all that you say to do, our Lord, as in chapter 20 of Exodus, for all of these great statements, over and over and over and over, Israel sinned. Israel disobeys. Curse comes upon them. The promised land, even when they reached it, continued to be less than flowing with milk and honey with all the skirmish wars and all that was going on. 
That's why in Hebrews chapter 11, it tells us just bluntly what they sought really was a kingdom, not this world. That is a, 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 a heaven of a, of a heavenly type. And so we see how then it could be that you would come to these beatitudes and in the spirit of the old covenant temporal way of seeing some of the beatitudes in the Old Testament, how you could interpret it as an ethical treatise. And it is, to be sure, ethical, but it misses the point when it's couched within the context of Jesus' coming. That is, you know, in, in the ethical sense, it could be something like a Proverb 8. Happy or blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, for whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. That's an interesting beatitude. Listen to me and wait. Wait for someone to come in order that we might flourish. What's that about? Happy are those who do not follow the advice of the wicked, but their delight is in the law of the Lord. And they are like trees planted by streams of water, which yields their fruit in the season. How does that get translated when the law becomes a curse? If in fact, we can't keep it. The same law that will condemn us is here viewed as the law that will save us. How is that? Well, listen to the Beatitudes. For there was a second tradition, particularly uh, often it's very clear in the Old Testament, where not in an ethical overtone, but it was spoken of as in a future overtone. That is to say, where something would happen in the future, the messianic kingdom of God, that would in fact satisfy the law in a manner that now the very virtues become descriptions of those who would receive it. Let me explain. Isaiah says it this way, Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you. Therefore he will rise up to show mercy to you. Blessed are those who will wait for him. Isaiah 32, blessed will you be who sow beside every stream. And it goes on, waiting. In other words, waiting for the harvest. Blessed here means deliverance. A deliverance that is spoken of here in the coming of the kingdom of God. And so notice a couple of things about Beatitudes here before we get right into uh, interpreting it. Notice, for instance, how the pronouncement of the kingdom of God is to those represented by a certain conditions. What kind of people are they? Who are they that are going to receive those future comforts of the kingdom of God, even as they would embrace it in the, in the, in the present? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For they will be comforted. They will, will, future. They will be filled. They will receive mercy. They will see God. They will be called children of God. Your reward will be great. Where? In heaven. There's a future tone to this. Even as it reflects the future tone of the prophet of Isaiah. In the coming of the Messiah. And so you begin to get a picture here. How it is that these beatitudes, if you read them within the lens of prophecy fulfilled in Christ become virtues, I, I hate to say it's, it's a disposition, if you will. It's a virtue, but it's, it's a disposition. It's the kind of person who would, the Christ comes, would envision that as 
not a threat to my own self-sufficiency and lordship, but would interpret it as good news because I have been prepared for the coming of the kingdom of God in my own humility. I want to say that again in another way and to show it to you. Here we have a description of those who are prepared. We'll talk about how in a minute. But who are prepared for the coming of the kingdom of God. Who would receive it as good news. Because remember, in the coming of the kingdom of God, there is the coming of a great collision course. We cannot forget that. We talked about that. It's going to be be the cause of great suffering and pain and persecution. And so in this language of the Beatitudes, you begin to see those overtones. That when the kingdom of God comes, they will find themselves mourning. They will find themselves suffering. They will find themselves seeking mercy and giving mercy one to another. You hear language like that here, don't you? Why? Because in this great collision course, there will be a collision between the God and the gods. And those who have come to the place of being exasperated by their false gods, those who are repenting of their self-sufficiency, if you will, the gods of their own image is a, is a way we do uh, self-sufficiency. You know, we make a god. All gods, all idols are this way. Did you know that? An idol is anything that we trust in to flourish, to make us and our families and our friends happy. It's what we fundamentally believe will make life good. But all of them, according to Isaiah, are like images in our own image. They, they are patterned after our own ingenuity, our own abilities, our own conceptions of what we can do. Let's say it's money. Well, I can, I can make money. I can work hard and make money. Let's say it's a house. I can make it beautiful. Think about it. You go right through it. Prestige, power, privilege, education. These are all things, politics, that we have this power to affect. Isn't it ironic that when the kingdom of God comes and says, no, this ki- over and over, he said it in so many words, no, 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 it's not that way. The kingdom doesn't come by the sword, he said to Peter. The kingdom of God doesn't come through the economy, he said to the Pharisees who gave him the corn. I mean the coin, not the corn. Over and over this theme shows up in Matthew. No, no, no. It doesn't even come through your, your traditions. If those are traditions that you have used to minimize the law in a manner that you can now conquer the law. That's the Pharisee problem. The Pharisee problem is not that they had too big a, a, a deal of the law. The pro- problem of the Pharisees is they had shrunk the law to these little, these little menial outward shows what they could do to make themselves feel righteous. And Jesus would come and say, what kind of things? You'll see it later. Oh, you've heard it said, do not kill. Look, a lot of you don't kill, literally. I'm going to tell you, you're killing every time you hate your brother. Ouch. And off he went, trying to exasperate self-sufficiency. I find it so interesting, so horrible, if you think about it, that in Ash Wednesday, a day that's to commemorate, to remind, to remind us, hey, look yourself in the mirror. You're dead in your trespasses. You're dead in your self-righteousness. 
You're impotent. Sometimes I did it just this week. I drive by the cemetery here, Grove uh, Cemetery, you know, the historic cemetery, um, and and I'm, I just it just kind of hits me, you know. One day I'm going to be in a box sitting, maybe there, maybe another. I don't know particularly which one yet. But I'll be in that box underground. I mean, it's just life-shattering to think about it. It's all gonna, I'm going to be under the ground. Don't laugh, but it's true. And and it's just so real when you stop to think like that. And so here we have a ceremony which wants us to remember from dust we have come till dust we will return. We are mortal, we are cursed. For we weren't supposed to die, remember? We are cursed. And yet, in the cross, Christ became our curse. Blessed is he, this Lenten season, or she, who knows that their self-sufficiency will curse them. Blessed are those who, in the language of our passage here, in this great motif, those who are mourning, those who know themselves to be poor, those who are meek, those who are hungry, those who know they need mercy. You could read merciful either way. Those who are pure in heart, that is, they're not idolaters. Those who seek peace with God. Those who are persecuted for righteousness. What kind of righteousness? The righteousness that doesn't worship the idols of self-sufficiency. And for those who don't worship those idols, I will guarantee it. I could say that anecdotally now at 60 years old, but I could also say it biblically. You will clash with those who do worship self-sufficiency. They will want you to get on the team. And they will want you to work it like they work it, whatever that is. Again, it could be education, it could be politics, it could be anything that is not ultimately this attitude of the Beatitudes. It's an powerful Beatitude. I think we should take the Beatitudes not as, as uh, a, a, it's a list of one. Most lists are, by the way. I mean, oftentimes you will get, like, like Paul will give you a list, and he goes, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Often the point is not 15, it's one. It's, it's like the repetitive one. And if you take them all together, you begin to see it. Blessed are those who repent of their self-righteous repentance. Blessed are those who are not relying on themselves to flourish in the kingdom of God. Blessed are those, I'll say in a positive way, who love and cherish and desire grace. Grace is an affront to our pride, isn't it? You know, I give you a gift. You give your kid a gift, or your kid gives your, your kid, you give your parents a gift. 
there's something in us oftentimes that finds it hard to just say, thank you. We often want to justify our worthiness to get the gift, don't we? At least in our head. I know I do. I feel very uncomfortable receiving gifts because I'm an arrogant man. I don't always live in the humility to know that of course I don't deserve anything you would give me. I have sinned against every one of you in some way, manner, or fashion, corporately or individually, with thoughts and minds and etc. I mean, thank you. You see, that's what the Beatitude would respond with. It's those who, when they see the coming of the kingdom of God, and it comes and it's presented with the ash cross of Christ put on my head, it's a celebration of grace. It's a reminder that I am cursed, and Christ was cursed for me. Paul says it so powerfully. For by grace you were saved. And then he says it in a perfect way for the Lenten season, if you will. And I say the Lenten season. Oh, it's not the Lenten season. It's Christianity. It's life season. And how does he say? He says, you know, that you're saved by grace through faith alone. And then here's the, like, don't you misunderstand what I'm saying. It's not of yourself. It's the free gift of God, lest anyone could or would, what? Boast. That's the point. You got it. That's the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who, when they receive eternal life, everything the future has been projecting will come when the coming of the Messiah comes. When entering into our world is the offer of true flourishing, abundant life that ends up along the tree, the, 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 the streams of living water and the tree of life and everything is flourishing and people are singing and eating the fruits of the kingdom of God as we see in Revelations 20. When that day comes as it begins to break in even to our lives now, at least spiritually if not temporally, those kind of people who receive that will receive it with a, thank you, this is great news. But for those who are still relying on their own humanism, they will see it as a threat. They will see it as an affront. They will see it as all kinds of things that are not very virtuous, lazy, or, yeah, whatever. Don't get me wrong. It's not wrong to work hard. The scripture commands us even to work every one of us with our own hands and seek to be self-sufficient if you mean by that that I work and I work for the sake of giving to those who have need. You know, the Protestant work ethic, the so-called Protestant work ethic was never laissez-faire. It got changed through the Enlightenment and the individualism of the Enlightenment. It was always for the common good. And so I'm not wanting you to confuse this attitude, this sense of, of repenting of self-sufficiency as therefore suggesting that we're supposed to live our life in order that everyone can serve me. That's not the point. You see, 
Paul will say just the opposite. Let every person work with their own hands in order that you might give to those who are in need. The fact of the matter is God will decree that some will have too little. And God will decree that some will have relative to a life of, of just a, a comfortable but moderate life, they will have too much. And I'm literally quoting here 1 Corinthians, I think it's 8, it's not 9, I can't remember which one. Those who have too little will not have too little. Those who have too much will not have too much. Why? Because they all know that we're in a communal eye, as I said in our, our membership class. It's, it's, it, you know, it, it's, it's remembering that we are not I, we are we. And so, on the one hand, don't distinguish that our purpose in life is to love God and to love our neighbor. That would deal away with all the, the wage disparities and all the stuff we hear politics trying to fix. If you just live Christianly, it would all be fixed. I know, that's, that's a wish list, but it starts with us. But that's really what it is. There's a horrible unequal distribution of wealth. I'm going to tell you, it's a sin. Go read Amos. Man, it just nails modern America. Nails it. But the answer is to love your neighbor and to love God and to work in order not only to provide for yourself but provide for others who are in need. To redistribute redistribute profit, if you will. That's not the point. The point is, when it comes to the economy of God, God is not one that we come to with a sense of entitlement. Let's put it that way. God is not someone we come to with a sense of, well, you know, thank you, God, for eternal life, but, you know, I was a pretty good person. If God were to say to you, you know, you know the, the hypothetical question, you know, why should I let you into heaven? The worst answer you could give, well, you know, um, I wasn't too bad. I tried, I tried to, to, to live with you, and, you know, I went to church, and I did this, and I did that, and it's, it gets into the I things. If, you, if that's what you do, you've missed the gospel totally. You're in bad trouble. But if what you come and... What you do is you say, Lord, I am poor of righteousness. I'm, I'm bankrupt of righteousness. Lord, I, I mourn my morality. I mourn my sufficiency. I see that I'm not. Lord, I'm meek. I'm not empowered here, not in this tribunal. I'm not empowered here. I'm meek. Lord, I'm thirsty. I'm starving. What I have been able to provide for myself spiritually has left me starving. Lord, I need mercy. I need mercy. Not entitlement. I need mercy. Not my rights. I need mercy. Lord, I need you. My heart longs for you. If you say that, you've got me. You're in. Knock and it shall be opened. Seek and you shall find. Ask and it will be given to you. Imperative, emphatic, 
Yes. But see, that's the point of this beatitude. The point is, has God moved you to a place where you have come to discern that? And so that will bring me to our final points. What? How? Will God bring you to that place, to get you to the Beatitudes place? Well, here's where we have lots to learn. You know, the kingdom of God, God's kingdom and blessing come through God's power, not through human power. We've already said all of that. Who then? It's the weak and the helpless who know themselves to be weak and helpless. No wonder I can't see. I do this all the time. It's all through the scripture, James, but he gives all the more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. I will seek those who know they are lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will build up the injured. Ezekiel 34. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 16. I could go on and on and on. 2 Corinthians. Therefore, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities for the sake of Christ. How could he say that? Well, if you read on, here's how. For he knows that all of those things, even those outward temporal things, frustrate our propensity to self-sufficiency and idolatry. Now, how does that change the way you view your suffering, your opposition? I mean, this is the point of Philippians. How Paul can say, I rejoice all the more in my sufferings. He prays that he might share in the sufferings of Christ. Why? Because he understands, like he wrote in Romans chapter 5, he boasts by faith in justification. He boasts by faith in God's assurance. And then he says he boasts in suffering? Remember that passage, if you're familiar with it? And why it takes you right to Christ again. And how it is that Christ died even for those who are yet sinning. Even for those who know themselves to be still sinning. Christ died for them. The suffering. It's that way. It can be internal. It can be external. It can be all sorts of manifestations. Problems with a relationship. Problems with a marriage. Problems with your eyes. Problem with your cancer. Problem with your your work, problems with this, problem with that, problems with this. You could just go on and on and on. How they reduce your pride and how they challenge your self-sufficiency to make you meek. The moments where I know I have been most close to God is moments you've never seen and you probably never will. They're usually late at night when I find myself truly in touch with the reality that I can't control this. Y'all know some of my issues, and you have your issues. But there have been these moments, and I, it, was, it was amazing to me, and I've said this before, I'm sure, if you've been around, but it's just amazing how the one word that comforted me, and I've, I've done it several times, not a whole lot, but several times, it's just, I just start repeating, mercy, mercy, mercy. Lord, hear me, mercy. I want mercy. I need mercy. I give up. That's what the kingdom of God is about. 
I don't know where you are, but pray for the Beatitudes, for God to shape you into the spirit of the Beatitudes, that you might receive eternal life and flourish. Even in this life, if you're a Christian, pray, for you will, almost always, you will have a propensity to fight against the forces that want to make you humble. Isn't that true? And so, while we want to be faithful, while we want to be the ethic of work, and all of these things are good. But beware, there is a very tiny, thin line between the ethics of work and the ethics of self-sufficiency and pride in their idolatry. And so we need, I pray, in this Lenten season, but no, in life, I encourage you and myself, even if you did not receive the imposition of ash this Wednesday, to walk around, look in the mirror, and see with your eyes of faith the imposition of ash. See that from dust you have come, from dust you shall return. Believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's self-righteous repentance.